Wisthosen, 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 Wisthosen. Hey there, welcome to Hot Takedown, the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is December 31st, 2019. Happy New Year's Eve! I'm Sarah Ziegler, the sports editor here at 538. I'm joined in the studio by senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hi, Neil. Hey, how's it going, Sarah? Good, how are you? I'm good. I'm ready for a new year to begin. A new year, a new decade, some people oh, say. So I, many new things. I don't. Wait, are you one of those people that in like on uh, January 1st, 2000, were like, actually, it's not the start of a new century? I was one of those people. Wow, Sarah, <laughs> I, I how was, could you? I continue to be one of oh, those people. That's just awful. <laughs> Sorry. On the line from Los Angeles is 538 contributor Jeff Foster. Hey, Jeff. Hello, Sarah and Neil. Happy New Year. You said Happy New Year's Eve. That's Is that even an, a saying? I'm not sure. Well, it is New Year's I mean, Eve. I can't say Happy New Year no until one, no one tomorrow. No really one says right. that, though. All right. Do you guys have any New Year's resolutions? Mine is to stop watching sports, which is not going to help me. <laughs> How interesting. Good to know. But look, this year... It's been a bad year for my teams. So um, maybe the resolution is not to stop watching sports. It's to no longer be emotionally invested in sports because it's been painful. Yeah, I think that's been my – that should have been my goal for like the last <laughs> – my entire life. I would have been better off. We could put together a great sizzle reel of all my false hope for the Mets. Oh, that is true. The Jets. Yeah. Various Michigan incarnations that all failed me. <laughs> Neil, what are your resolutions? Oh, man. I should have used that moment when Jeff was kind of vamping to uh, <laughs> think of a resolution, but I just could not get past um, thinking about... <laughs> Neil's perfect. He doesn't need to change anything. Yeah, no no change is necessary here. <laughs> All right. I'm resolving for Georgia Tech to improve in either basketball or football. Nice. And And Sarah, you have said yeah, you no. expect us to win the national championship within uh, two years. Is that right? I expect is you that- to <laughs> I didn't say win. The, see, you guys do it wrong. You are only you are obsessed with championships. I live my life just happy for a win here and there. You know, Sarah, that is my resolution. You are right. Wait, uh, and, and I wait. think I I take issue with that last statement. As the person who is constantly down on the Vikings, just they, you know, everything Kirk Cousins does as they march easily to the. He playoffs. is making a good point. He's making a good point. No, he's not because I am just a realist. I'm not mad at them because they're not winning Super Bowls. LOL. I have given that. <laughs> I gave that up a long time ago. <laughs> just getting there at this point would be nice. No, I. And that's not why I'm mad at them. I'm mad at them because they underperform, not because they're not winning titles. So I was in the middle before Jeff, <laughs> perhaps correctly interjected. Uh, I was in the middle of saying you are right. We could all stand to focus less on the ring. At the end of the day, we're so focused in sports right now on the championship. That's why we have tanking. We have tanking because it's not good enough to win 41 games and be the seven seed in the Eastern Conference anymore and lose uh, in five in the first round because we're not winning a championship. So that's my resolution. I think all everyone, all sports fans should join this resolution to just enjoy the wins and don't care about championships. You, me, all sports fans, and Kevin Durant. That's right. Who should, 41 uh, wins who is enough. That. It's enough. <laughs> I disagree. That's our new mantra. I disagree, but we'll move on. Uh, championships are all that matters. K 
kids. So for the end of this year, we're going to mix things up in the spirit of New Year's Eve. We thought the best way to celebrate the end of 2019 would be an all rabbit hole show inspired by the events of the past decade in sports. Neil, why don't you start us off? Sure. So, you know, we're sitting here in the studio and we're reflecting on the decade that was. And, you know, maybe it's a function of getting older. Uh, but I feel like sports have changed a lot in the last 10 years. It's a lot to take in. Again, maybe I'm getting old and feeling like people should get off my lawn. Uh, but we've seen changes in how athletes play, how they engage with the fans, how they handle contracts, how the media covers them, how teams choose who gets to be the players. Uh, but I wanted to focus specifically on how the games themselves have changed this decade, just in terms of playing styles and strategies. Uh, and so to quantify this, I spent a lot of time on sportsreference.com's very handy league statistics pages. Uh, they have these pages. It's under seasons. They show for every season in history, across like a bunch of different categories, what was the league average in this stat and that stat? Uh, and so for each of the three most popular American pro sports, so MLB, the NBA, and the NFL, I wanted to look at how, you know, the, the end of this decade compared with modern history. So I went back to 1980. That's the first year of the three-point line in the NBA. Uh, and then compared that with the end of the 2000s, uh, looking for the categories where the 2010s had featured the biggest changes to each sport. So first, let's start with baseball. And there's a lot to choose from because the past few seasons of baseball have been just about extremes. Yeah, there's a yeah. lot of categories that are either at or near either historical highs or lows, but you know, not as much in between those two. And so on kind of a macro scale, one of the biggest changes of the 2010s was in the age of batters. I thought this was interesting. Um, in the late 2000s, the average hitter was basically 29 years old, a little bit older than the overall average uh, since 1980. But now batters are under age 28, which is by far the youngest they've been in the last 40 years. And I think some of this speaks to a great young generation of talent. You know, you have your your Mike Trouts, your Cody Bellingers, Ronald Acuna, people like that. Uh, but I think it's also the influence of analytics and teams realizing that they can get really good production from younger players on the cheap uh, because of the way that the salary structure is set up in baseball. And we should note that you know, players were older in the 90s and even into the 2000s because of performance-enhancing drugs, you know, extending careers and, and allowing players to be older. But that was one of the biggest changes in baseball of the last decade. Interestingly, pitchers are also a little bit younger, but nowhere near as much as the change in hitters. Um, in terms of the game itself, I found three uh, big categories that are not going to surprise you at all uh, that massive changes have come in. So first one is batting average. The league batting average 10 years ago was about 265. That's pretty normal for baseball history. Now it's down to 252, which is really low compared with the long-term long term norm. Uh, strikeouts, again, not a surprise. 10 years ago, there were 6.8 strikeouts per game, which itself was pretty high compared with the average. Now there are 8.5 strikeouts per game uh, uh, over the past three years, and it was higher than that in 2019. And that helps contribute to that batting average being lower, too, because when you strike out, you can't really uh, get a hit on that at bat. Uh, that's how baseball works. Uh, <laughs> whoa, and then, whoa, whoa. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Uh, breaking news here. Uh, and then home runs. You know, at the end of the 2000s, there were about 1.0 home runs per game, uh, which is 
slightly more than the average since 1980. I should say this is per team uh, per game. Now that number is 1.3 over the past three years, and it was almost 1.4 in 2019. We've talked about it before. It's radically reshaped the way the game is played. There's been even a study about trying to explain how this happened. Uh, They found that seam height on the ball made them more aerodynamic. Also, um, players are adopting more of a kind of you know, fly ball centric, uh, style of hitting. All of these things have kind of come together at once. And that's not really surprising, but it is sort of striking to see just how much those have changed over the last 10 years. There are a few less notable categories in baseball that changed even more than the big name ones. So double plays are down, uh, by a tenth of a double play per game. That doesn't sound like much, but this is a category that basically over the preceding 30 years really didn't fluctuate more than up or down by uh, five hundredths of a double play per game, and now they've changed by a full tenth uh, in the last 10 years. One of the reasons why is fewer balls in play, fewer chances for a double play. Also, the drop in batting average means fewer singles, fewer players on first to even be doubled up. They're they're circling the bases instead of stopping at first. And then sacrifice bunts are also down. I know we're all lamenting the, the death of the bunt here. There were 0.33 bunts per game in the late 2000s, and now they're are basically half that, 0.17 bunts per game in the last three years. Analytics, you can kind of point to directly as having killed the bunt. Uh, and so those two actually changed more than batting average home runs and strikeouts, but they were all really extreme changes. And it's really incredible to look at how much the game has changed in those ways in the last 10 years. You know, again, in 2009, there are some high categories and low categories relative to history, but now there are categories that are like two standard deviations above or below the average from the past 40 years uh, happening in baseball right now. It's like interesting to see it in those terms because like, you know, everyone kind of talks about, well, oh, so many strikeouts, you know, and the home runs are killing the game. According yeah, according to, to, our to our Nate boss. Yes. But Nate's policy on being anti-home runs, that is not a hot take town official policy. I don't agree with that. I'm <laughs> no, pro, definitely not. <laughs> I'm pro home runs. I'm actually pro strikeouts. And I'm not missing double plays and bunts. Come on. These are good changes, I think. The only one I'd bemoan a little bit in there is the batting. I, I don't like that there aren't guys out there or there are fewer guys out there who are just trying to be like 300 hitters. Yeah, I don't like that either. That seems to not exist anymore. I mean, really, you guys, that always seemed like the the least helpful thing. Like, oh, good. Thanks for that single. It certainly seemed like the most overrated thing. Right. Yeah. You know, you hit 300, you get to the hall. That's, the, you know, that that's silly. If you didn't do anything else... I mean, I still think if you hit 300, you should probably go to the Hall of Fame. Not getting Sarah's vote. No, no, not getting my vote. Sorry. Uh, (laughs) Unless you're Joe Maurer and then fine. Okay, let's move on to the NBA uh, because as much as baseball has changed in the last decade, I think you could argue that basketball has been reshaped even more. And most of these changes, a lot of the biggest ones at least, have been in terms of the widespread adoption of small ball. So this is an interesting one. The average NBA player over the last two seasons has been 78 inches tall. That's six foot six. Uh, thank you for that. Yes. Math no, I just wanted to give people <laughs> different, different options. You. That would have taken me a few seconds. <laughs> uh, that is the first time that the average NBA player's height dipped below six foot seven since 1980. Huh. Yes. Huh. How about that? <laughs> uh, in concert with that, 
they're playing faster. Pace is up from 92 possessions a game 10 years ago to 99.4 over the past three seasons. And just this season alone, the pace is almost 101 possessions per team per 48 minutes. So then along these same lines, it's no surprise that three-point attempts are way up. So 10 years ago, they attempted 17.7 threes per game. Now they attempt Almost double that, 31.6 threes a game over the last few seasons. Uh, and free throw attempts are way down as well uh, relative to field goal attempts. Uh, as fewer and fewer shots are being taken closer to the basket, it's harder to get fouled on a jumper than it is uh, when, you're, when you're going inside. And another kind of secret consequence of all of this is that there's been a massive increase in missed shots per game. This was actually one of the biggest changes in the NBA in the last 10 years is that 10 years ago, 43.7 missed field goals per game. Now 47.7. You know, another small ball thing that comes up is that you've got more skilled passers on the court, greater emphasis on ball movement. So assists are up. Uh, A decade ago, 57.8% of baskets were assisted, which was extremely low by historical standards. Now it's up to almost 60%, which is close to the long-term average. Um, Mid-range shots, 10 years ago, 32% of all shots were mid-range, according to NBA Advanced Stats. Now only 13% of all shots come from the mid-range. And then finally, the the role of the big man has changed really dramatically. So 10 years ago, centers took about 3% of their shots from beyond the arc. Now they take 14% from beyond the arc. And, and it's kind of encroaching toward 20% uh, this season. So those were the biggest changes in basketball, uh, and whether you like all of them or not, but it has led to an increase in offensive efficiency, especially shooting from the floor. So the league average effective field goal percentage 10 years ago was .498. Now it is .522. That's a huge increase. Those are all kind of changes that we can point back to, much like in baseball, we can point back to analytics and kind of looking at the the influence there were analytics in each sport and baseball is a lot further along i think in 2009 than uh than basketball was but now i feel like they've kind of both gotten to the same level which is also something that you know i think has had profound uh effects on each sport it's so interesting to me that so many people don't like the turn that the nba has taken when like now everyone on the court has to be able to shoot, which seems like an, kind of basic an improvement. Maybe yeah, yeah. <laughs> isn't that better than having guys who than a bunch of oafs? Yeah, I, I just that seems like a good thing. I don't. It's it's interesting. I think people just really hate change. They really hate something going away from what they grew up with, what they're comfortable. Oh, for with. sure. Yeah. yeah, and if you watch a game, I mean, I don't think anyone's pining for the days of. Um, you know Pat Riley uh, versus the the Knicks in the in the mid '90s, late '90s, and and kind of Heat versus Knicks battles. That first team to 90 points wins. You know that right. kind of thing. Now we're seeing a lot of offense across basketball. Probably positive. Yeah, you know? I feel like it's more watchable. More points. Isn't it? The, the height thing is interesting because you know I I totally that totally makes sense that guys aren't as tall, but it does feel like I don't know if you looked at. BMI or something. It does feel like the average NBA player has gotten sh- bigger, though. Like just bulked up and like physical, more of a physical presence. They mo- look more like linebackers now than I think they used to. Um, and really, like across the board, you know, it just seems like everyone is sort of taking that LeBron James model of I'm going to get really jacked when I reach the league. 
<laughs> so then finally, I want to move on to the NFL. Um, and statistically, the NFL hasn't changed quite as radically as either basketball or baseball has over the past 10 years. Although I think that's just because the changes are kind of continuations of trends that started in maybe the previous decade. For instance, passing efficiency is as high as it's ever been, and it kind of goes up almost every year uh, if you look at net yards per attempt. But it didn't really see a huge increase like home runs did in baseball because uh, football had already had that kind of quantum leap between the late 90s and the late 2000s. The same goes for overall offensive efficiency like yards per play. Basically, passing categories are up basically across the board uh, if you look at it in the 2010s and rushing numbers are down. Not really surprising. I think that's a little like the NFL's version of basketball cutting out those mid-range shots taking more threes because the average passing play gains more yards than the average run and you know it's more efficient even after you account for interceptions which are also way down one of the categories that was up the most in the 2010 specifically though was first downs per game which i thought was interesting uh so the league has been over 20 first downs a game in the past two seasons it had never even come close to cracking that mark uh before the decade began Now, some of this is getting more chances because guys going for it on fourth down is up a lot more as as a percentage of opportunities or just per game. Uh, They went for it on 12.7% of opportunities to go for it on fourth down uh, 10 years ago. Now that's 13.4%. And this season, it's almost 15%. So we've seen a huge increase just this year alone. Maybe it's the influx of of some of these younger coaches um, that are kind of more well-versed in analytics and less afraid to kind of take that risk. But you know, greater efficiency and less risk and and the willingness to go for it on fourth down means it's easier to string together first downs and kind of, you know, preserve a drive. Another big change is in passing touchdowns, which I thought was interesting. Uh, There were 1.4 passing touchdowns per game 10 years ago. Now there's 1.7. And the average leading up to the 2010s was 1.3 per game. Uh, And when we think about passing touchdowns, maybe we think about deep balls. But teams are throwing for fewer air yards per attempt. They're throwing fewer deep passes of 20 or more air yards now than they were 10 years ago. Uh, The reason why touchdowns are up is because they're just choosing to throw more uh, around the goal line. So in the red zone now, uh, 53.4% of all offensive plays are passes. Uh, That was under 50% at the end of the last decade. So it sort of kind of goes with what we were saying earlier where they're not afraid to pass and they're not afraid to pass under situations in which normally you would run a lot more uh, in previous generations. And that's got to help with just touchdowns in general being up in the red zone just because, you know, you're not – limiting yourself to what a defense would have expected in previous years. And that's got to help your efficiency, I would think. Yeah. And, you know, I think it speaks to maybe like being less risk averse, too. So, you know, you're not going to like pound the ball three times and then just settle for a field goal. The biggest changes in the NFL over the past 10 years are in two point conversions and penalties. So after a touchdown 10 years ago, they would go for two 5.1% of the time. Now, at the end of the 2010s, they go for it 8.4% of the time. Uh, so a lot of that has to do with the league midway through the decade deciding to move the extra point distance back, which made two-point tries more attractive. But coaches are going for two more over the past couple seasons than they did in the first few seasons after the rule change. And I think it's because they have analytics on when it makes sense to take the risk as opposed to just sort of automatically assuming, okay, we're going to you know, take the one point 
always unless there's some like hyper specific late game situation where we absolutely need two points to kind of extend the game. Uh, but the thing that is up most of all in the last 10 years compared with the end of the, the 2000s is penalties. So accepted penalties per team per game have gone from 5.7 to 6.8 over the last 10 years. And penalty yardage per game has gone from 46.1 to 58.4. So that's a change of more than 12 yards per game extra on penalties alone in the last 10 years. And there are some theories on why this has happened. I think um, the league has instituted a lot of new rules to try to emphasize player safety, protecting the quarterback. They've they've famously called a lot more offensive holding uh, earlier this season. It seems like every year they kind of go into a season with some kind of new like emphasis, new excuse to throw flags. Also, we have a bunch of new ways to review plays, uh, including pass interference now. Uh, and I think all of those things are kind of coming together to uh, fuel this increase in penalties. Now, that's a change that I think pretty much nobody would consider positive uh i don't think anybody likes more of a game being decided by the referees you could argue that quarterbacks and wide receivers themselves are probably in favor of all those personal yeah but you know (laughs) i think so yeah they're the only ones who yeah who who are in favor of these changes um but i think also most of the nfl's changes while being a little bit more gradual uh, than some of the other sports over the last decade they're trending toward more passing and more offense and maybe less running. So sorry to the running backs out there. <laughs> but these are changes that I think lead to a more entertaining product uh, for the most part. And to you guys' point earlier, maybe you can't quite say that as much about the other two sports. I mean, the I have to say it again. The NBA's biggest change this decade was more missed shots uh, <laughs> because the three makes up such a larger percentage of all shot attempts. And, and you just make fewer threes, even though the math works out in terms of efficiency. Uh, one of the baseball's biggest changes was the reduction in batting average. So I wanted to open up to you guys and ask subjectively, which sport do you think changed the most in the last decade and have more of the changes been Good or bad? I mean, I really think they all have changed. All three of those sports have changed pretty dramatically. It's just how fast it happened, I guess. Um, I mean, if you looked, you know, 50 years ago versus today, all of them are way different. Oh, yeah. yeah. NFL, I think you're right that it's been more gradual. And so it hasn't been quite as noticeable, which is why we still have these arguments on Twitter about, you know, running versus passing, even though it's pretty clear passing is more efficient for, you know, every team. Um, but I, I, I feel like in baseball, it's been the starkest. Um, I, I guess I feel like at the NBA, basketball has changed a lot in various ways over years. And I think you're partial in basketball to the style you grew up with. And that makes it harder for people to adopt this, to really like the style. But three pointers are fun. Three pointers are exciting. I, that it's, I mean, three-pointers and dunks are the best part, right? And I thought it was interesting that for all the complaints about James Harden and kind of foul-seeking, which he definitely does, sure. and there's like a class of player that kind of uh, fits that category, although he is by far the foremost practitioner of that, fouls are actually down, you know, uh, compared with uh, previous yeah. um, you know, relative to uh, field goal attempts. I think, I, I think the answer is the NBA, just because, yes – on the court, the way the teams play and, and you know, the emphasis on, on three-point shooting obviously is huge. But also just the league itself, the way teams are built now and the, the, the way the super team is now the new norm and, and really the only way <laughs> – 
to be relevant is to get a couple huge stars and put them on a team and then sort of deeming all the other teams irrelevant. Um, that's huge from a fan's per- fan perspective. And also just like also from a fan perspective, the emphasis on the off season and how much, you know, that that's been sort of, especially in the last like three or four years, just how big that's become and almost dwarfing the actual NBA finals um, in terms of what we care about and what we're talking about. Yeah. And, and it's funny uh, and very fitting that in that last regard, LeBron's decision happened in the summer of 2010. Huh. So it was really like Thanks a lot, LeBron. the start of the era <laughs> was the start of the decade. You know, the decade has been very synonymous with LeBron, but also with players making decisions for themselves. Yeah, that's that's amazing that it really was a decade of change. Very cool. Well, Jeff, why don't you start us off with your rabbit hole? I was inspired by what I think is the still the most incredible sports story of the decade, which is Leicester City winning the English Premier League. If you don't care about soccer or English soccer, you'll probably disagree with me, and that's fine. As we all know on this podcast, I'm resident degenerate gambler. Um, from a sheer odds perspective, they won with 5,001 odds. Here comes a big caveat. I have can talk endlessly on how five that odd that line 5001 was kind of bogus and it was a bad line and nothing in a 20 team league should be no team should be 5001 um and the bookies got burned that being said i went back and i looked at the odds the preseason odds of every team in the four major sports plus college football and college basketball i have to warn you uh the site i was using was very helpful uh, this is sports odds history. Uh, they're not great on women's sports. I don't have the WNBA and I don't have women's college basketball. And then I also looked at some other sports. I looked at golf and I looked at tennis in uh, men's and women's tennis and golf in the four majors and the four slams in tennis. Just to put those 5,001 odds for Leicester City in perspective. And it's pretty stark. You just look at the the average uh, odds of, of the winners of the leagues the EPL becomes the most random league with 500, the average odds being five, around 500 to one of the winners. The least random will be, uh, French Open men's, which was a little bit more than even money odds. Most of that is obviously chalked up to Rafael Nadal winning basically every year as a huge favorite. Not surprising. If you take out Leicester City, the EPL goes from the most random or the most unexpected to the second least random league across the whole decade at the average winner being about two to one. That was what I was going to ask, Jeff, was whether that number included the Leicester City and was massively that's skewed the point. by that. It's entirely the result of Leicester City. So that's how staggering that win was or how staggeringly bad that uh, line was by those odds makers. But still, even if they were 5,001, they probably should have still been about 300, 400 to one. Even that would have been remarkable. So I went through and I did every champion across all these major sports. Can you guess who the non-Leicester City most surprising title winner was? I I personally was a little surprised. I'm going to go with the 2011 New York football giants uh, for upsetting the Patriots. Was it one of the um, San Francisco giants? It was not. It was college basketball. It was the 2014 UConn men's team winning. Uh, that Alley, makes sense. Yep. That makes sense. Shabazz yep. Napier at um, 65 to 1. The second was the 2010 Auburn team winning at 50 to 1, which was 
actually very surprising because we didn't really know who Cam Newton was. He kind of came out of nowhere and they won the title. Um, the most surprising NFL winner, Neil Payne's 2017 Philadelphia Eagles at 40 to 1. Oh, wow. That was a pretty, they were a huge underdogs. Most surprising Major League Baseball team, 2015 Kansas City Royals. Yeah. Most surprising NHL team, last year's 2019 St. Louis Blues. Oh, interesting. I mean, they were not huge upsets, but that was still the most of the decade. No hockey team is likely to win the Stanley Cup. I think that's... That's the, actually... Yeah, yeah that's the Penguins. Everyone's 30 to 1. Who knows? The NBA <laughs> is by far the most predictable of, the, of these major sports. I think that's not surprising. The average winner is about 8 to 1. The interesting thing I, th- I found about the NBA was that the Golden State Warriors in 2015 were the l- biggest long shot to win the title, 28 to 1. Interesting. Hey, you know, there's a website out there that had them as favorites to win the title going into that season. Interesting. I don't know what that website is. Huh. We'll have to anyway, look that up. Maybe we'll think of it later. The Golden State Warriors were also the two shortest odds of any of the major sports teams to win the title, the biggest favorites to win, led by the 2018 uh, Golden State Warriors, which were you know, about one and a half to one. And then the 2017 Golden State Warriors were a little bit longer odds, but still you know, less than two to one. If you expand it to all the individual sports, uh, number two on our list behind uh, behind Leicester City is the most surprising champion. I won't even ask you to guess because this is so random. Would be Louis Oosthuizen winning the 2010 British Open at the Old Course in St Andrews. Uh, we remember it fondly. <laughs> we sure do. The British Open golf is truly. If you take away that nonsense with the EPL, the most random, because they've had three sort of massive underdogs win. Louis Wiesthuizen winning 201. Darren Clark, 150 to 1. Royal St. George's, 2011. And Stuart Sink, 125 to 1, roughly, at Turnberry in 2009. Most surprising result in tennis, 2015 U.S. Open women's Flavia Panetta. Winning at 150. Oh, yeah. That uh, was yeah. a huge, huge upset. She yeah. upset Serena, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then she didn't she retire like pretty shortly thereafter? Yeah, I think. She's like, I've done it. I'm done. See ya. What else can I do? It's yeah, funny exactly. how the, uh, the French Open for women also has had a bunch of upsets. Uh, Francesca Schiavone, 80 to 1. Jelena Astapenko, 80 to 1. Um, whereas the men is really. Some of the shortest odds you'll see will just be. I think Nadal owns the five biggest favorites to win, the four biggest favorites to win across that time. So it's pretty interesting. I, I also went by year just to see, you know, what was the most random year. And that was actually 2014, despite the Patriots winning at six to one, which was not very surprising. You had that Connecticut team I mentioned. You had Ohio State winning in football at 40 to one. The Giants, one of the San Francisco Giants teams winning at 25 to one. So there was a, a few sort of surprising results that year. The least surprising year was just last year or two years ago, I guess now, if it's 2020. Um, with, it's not yet. Okay, it's fine. still 2019, Jeff. One more day. One more day. Uh, One the more Golden day. State Warriors winning, but also Clemson winning and the Patriots winning. It was very chalky. Capitals, Red Sox, also kind of short odds. So overall, I think um, surprisingly of, of, of the really big sports, baseball seems to be the most random, which I was a little bit surprised by. You know, even with all this talk about hockey, there were still more favorites to win. I mean, the Royals 
in 2015 were, were long shots at 33 to one, the Red Sox, uh, the both two of those versions of the Giants, San Francisco Giants were, were both kind of 25 to one long shots to win. So it baseball generally had this sort of, um, the most continual randomness, I think, in the title winner. The, the, the biggest favorite to win was the Cubs at 6-1 to one in 2016. And just for fun, because I'm a shameless Hollywood L.A. type right now, I, I also pulled up the Oscars <laughs> just to, uh, you know, see how that compared. <laughs> By the way, you should bet on the Oscars if you like favorites, because the favorites uh, always win. Most random uh, result of the major awards was last year, Olivia Coleman winning Best Actress at 6, 6.5 to 1. Most surprising Best Picture was Moonlight at 4.5 to 1. So you can see why they messed up reading the card. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was a shocker. Yeah, it was a, it was um, a surprise. There's been some yeah. <laughs> staggering favorites in the Oscars. Uh, Daniel Day-Lewis winning Best Actor for Lincoln had 99% probability uh, implied probability based on the odds. So that's, you're not, you're not going to get rich off that. Yeah. There's always a category every year where it's like, like, you know, best supporting actress where it's like, yes, Meryl Streep is winning this. Like there's no, there would be, would, would there even be bets on any of the other actresses? There's always one category like that. These, uh, Daniel Day Lewis's odds were minus 10,000, which it's just so small. There were a couple other a couple other winners who had that. Anne Hathaway winning Best Supporting Actress for Les Mis. That may be what you're thinking of. And oh, also yeah. uh, Kate Blanchett for yep. Blue Jasmine, Best Actress. So those are like the anti-Lester City. <laughs> They're the yeah. anti-Lester City. So Jeff, if, if I'm hearing right, so the, the odds of the biggest upsets in the Oscars are uh, more likely than the, the like least surprising results from sports? Not the least surprising, but yes, roughly, roughly. Um, roughly. I mean, there's been a couple, you know, really short odds winners in sports. I mean, you look at, well, those two Warrior teams that won, but also the Patriots at about 6-1. to one. I guess, yeah, 6-1, to one, that's still, still better than uh, Moonlight's odds. So are you going to switch to just betting the Oscars now? You're going to quit? No, I, no I mean, horse I, racing. after crunching the numbers of the oscars it's not enough fun there's not enough there's not enough value to be had not enough losing to make it fun well you know you gotta get you gotta right? make money you know you don't you don't want to you don't want to be betting on kate blanchett to win for blue jasmine you'll get like a penny less than a penny on the dollar yeah they may as well offer odds that like the sun will come yeah. up tomorrow i bet you could get odds <laughs> could you yeah, I wonder. Really short odds. <laughs> if it doesn't though like yeah good luck cashing yeah, in Jeff i'm gonna parlay <laughs> Daniel Day-Lewis winning for Best Actor with the sun coming up and win absolutely nothing. (laughs) Nice. All right. I think we can leave that there. I like that you finished the decade with a gambling rabbit hole. Very on brand. I had to. So I'm going to start my rabbit hole by looking forward before I look back. I am looking forward to 2020 for a lot of reasons, but mostly, to be honest, because of the Summer Olympics. I love the Olympics. I love the spectacle of the whole globe coming together. I love the sports that don't get a lot of regular attention sitting in the spotlight for those two weeks. And I love, love, love the U.S. women's gymnastics team. 
so much fun. I can't wait to I can't wait to watch the Olympics. So I've been a sucker for the Olympics pretty much my whole life. I think my earliest real memories of the Olympics were in 1988. I remember yelling at the TV, cheering for Janet Evans because she was she was so much smaller than the other swimmers, but she still won three gold medals. She was very plucky and fun. Um, I remember very clearly Greg Luganis hitting his head on the diving board and the blood and the water and it was terrifying and he got in a concussion but then he still won the event which is insane and I remember being just in awe of Florence Griffith Joyner and how she was so incredibly fast but also such like a vibrant person she remember she had those like one-legged body suits and her fingernails were like super super long which is the first time I think I had really like ever seen an athlete with that kind of like personality out there while they were competing, um, which I, I remember thinking was so much fun. Flojo's records from 1988, which again, 31 years ago, still stand. She set the 100-meter record at the Olympic trials and then the 200-meter record at the Olympics itself. That her speed still holds up after all this time is really incredible given how much faster Olympic runners have gotten. So I wanted to see just how many world records have fallen over the past decade. So I looked up all of the track and field records ratified by the International Association of Athletics Federations, which started keeping track of these records in 1912. So, you know, they go back a little ways. <laughs> they're, they're real. They're real records. These do include some events that aren't in the Olympics. They don't include indoor-specific records, and they also don't include records that didn't meet the IAAF standards, like the sub-two-hour marathon run in October by Eliud Kipchoge, because he was the only runner. He was paced by a car, and he had a team helping with wind resistance and, and like water, so that didn't count for the overall actual records. I wish I had a team during the day helping me with wind resistance. I know, right? right? <laughs> but also, he still holds the marathon record, so so he's, he's doing fine. <laughs> so of the 85 men's and women's track and field records, 33 have been set since the start of 2010. So 39% of all track records fell in the past decade. The oldest record standing isn't Flojo's, but she's close. Czech runner Yarmila Kratikvilova set the world record in the women's 800 meters in 1983. So track and field is an easy Olympic sport to measure, obviously, because of the timed nature of the events. It's harder to measure my favorite sport, gymnastics, over time, given how the scoring system of the, the sport has changed so dramatically. Though... I would argue that it's still pretty easy to make the case for Simone Biles as the most dominant gymnast of all time, given her pure number of medals alone. Biles won 25 medals from 2013 through 2019, 19 of them gold. The next most decorated female gymnast was Svetlana Korkina, who won 20 medals from 1994 through 2003. Just like of any type. She has more golds almost than then, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the next closest person with medals. Yeah. So, you know, pretty dominant. I think if you looked into her, you know, into her scoring, she's obviously had huge scoring numbers too, but scoring has changed twice since 2006. So, so that one's a little trickier. The other Olympic event that draws the biggest headlines, swimming, is also an easy one to measure, but it has changed so much over the years as well that it's hard to know whether it's the athletes or the technology that is really pushing the boundaries of the sport. 
I looked at all swimming records set in 50-meter pools, and those are the pools used by the Olympics. They're shorter, the 25-meter pools too, but I just looked at the 50-meter ones to see which records have stood the test of time. And in fact, none of them have. (laughs) Of the 38 men's and women's swimming events that have been around for longer than just this decade, only 12 were set before 2010, and none were set before 2008. Oh, wow. Yeah. Now, that coincides with when the high-tech bodysuits were first allowed. Many of those suits have since been banned, but there have been other, you know, advances in the swimwear and, and whatnot. So. Did they retroactively kind of say, like, records wearing those are not? No, they, count, or, no they've kept yeah. those records, but many of them have fallen oh, they've since been then anyway. anyway. Right. Yeah. But the oldest ones were from from just 2008. Uh, the records keep falling, and though it's hard to compare swimmers through different eras, it would be silly to dismiss incredibly talented modern swimmers like superstar Katie Ledecky just because she has better technology available to her. Ledecky owns records in three of the 18 women's swimming events, and she has broken 14 world records during her career, including setting the 1,500-meter record six separate times. Each one of those should count as its own <laughs> I know, right? Like, like, that's amazing. She just kept getting better and better and besting her own times, which is very cool. Before Ledecky set her first record in the 1500 meters in 2013, it was held for six years by my favorite swimmer, Kate Ziegler. No relation, probably. (laughs) Who knows? Have you ever met her? No, sadly. Actually, I saw uh, Kate Ziegler swim at the Olympic trials when they were held in Omaha in both 2008 and 2012. Did you like yell out, Ziegler? Maybe. I also, I purchased my favorite athletic souvenir ever during the one of those Olympic trials, a swim cap with Ziegler printed on it, which is amazing. And I get a lot of chances to uh, flaunt that. I should just wear it to work, actually. (laughs) (laughs) It'd be great. When it's raining. It could be very helpful, very utilitarian. But whose record in the 1500 meters did Kate Ziegler break? Janet Evans, of course, a record she set back in 1988 and she held for 19 years. We will certainly see more records fall at this summer's Olympics. And I can't wait. Yeah, is it? Uh, I guess you touched on a little bit about not being able to know what, how much of it is technology, but I mean, a lot of it is just athletes are way better now than in the past, right? Yeah, I mean, the advances in training and and you know knowing how to make yourself faster and you know and, and stronger and whatever. So, I mean, there's a lot of that. There is there is some, you know, in swimming at least, some technological advances as well, which is sort of why, you know, the track records are a little bit more impressive. Also, track is, you know, accessible to more people instead of swimming. And, you know, that. so it's it's cooler, I think, when those records fall. It's also cooler when they last forever. Yeah. Like, you really know that Flojo was – I mean, she's the fastest woman of all time. Ever. Still, yeah. yeah. When will, when will Yarmila's – Record fall. <laughs> I didn't want to try to pronounce the last name. Um, a couple of of runners have gotten with have gotten close, um, but they haven't managed to break it yet. Is that like the the maybe not Mount Everest, like an actually difficult whoa, mountain to climb whoa, 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 of whoa. Uh, of like track and field? That was a nice little. Uh, I want to throw shade in. Yeah. Mount Everest is not uh, is not really an accomplishment to climb. I wow Hot disagree take. with that. Anyway, cold take. I guess. That. Yeah, I thoroughly disagree. <laughs> They're shuttling, you know, rich business types uh, practically up to the top. You know, if you just pay enough and, and don't die on the ba- way and down. And don't die. It just uh, glosses over that don't oh, die we're really on impressed. the way down part of it all. Anyway, 
Yarmila's record. <laughs> are they sort of like, do they have a picture of Yarmila like taped up on their locker? Right. And they're just like, I'm going to beat you. One day. One day. Yarmila, You're never going to be number for one you. forever. Yeah. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> I mean, it's been a long time. It that has. is crazy. I know. Yeah. That's really, I mean, given how much faster everyone has gotten, that's, that's really impressive. So I thought that was very cool. Very excited for the Olympics. I can't wait for them to come and watch all of those records to fall. That will do it for this week's show. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll be back in your feed next Tuesday. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. Be sure to review and rate the show. It really does help other people discover us. You can also email us at podcast at 538.com to let us know what you think. Our podcast producer is Grace Lynch. Our commissioner is Chad Matlin. On behalf of Neil and Jeff, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time. <laughs>